This is How to Read. I'm Milan. And I'm Olivia, the producer of this episode. Today we're talking with Travis Chi-Wing Lau, a scholar of literature and the history of medicine who's also a poet. This episode is about understanding chronic pain. Chronic pain is pain that lasts for months, years, or even a lifetime. And doctors have a hard time understanding it. Not only is it sometimes impossible to cure, but doctors also tend to fixate on bodily pain and not address the ways pain is also psychological and emotional. In fact, Travis Chi-Wing Lau argues that this attitude goes back to the ways doctors have been trained since the 18th century, to observe outer bodily symptoms and discount patients' subjective experiences. Turning to Travis's poetry, we discuss why we need poets as well as doctors to understand pain. Travis Chi-Wing Lau, welcome. Hello, it's very nice to be able to be chatting with you so far away. Yeah. Um, So we are going to be talking about chronic pain and understanding chronic pain. So my first question is like, okay, so I feel like the the phrase chronic pain is one that I'm familiar with, but yeah, what, what does the chronic part add to pain? How does it fit into this broader category of pain? So... I too needed to see how medicine was trying to define its own understanding of chronic pain. And it's it's pretty fluctuating. Chronic is about sort of longer periods in which your body registers pain signals for weeks, months, or even years. In my case, it's absolutely been years. Uh, but it's about duration um, and sort of length of episode rather than severity. So... Is this a concept that comes through medicine, that like kind of medicine has defined the terms? I think so. And in general, one of the, the big problems many people living with chronic pain face is whether or not their experiences line up with how the uh, medical establishment has defined it. So if your pain doesn't conform to some of these models as loose as they are, sometimes you don't get the treatment that you in fact need. And that's something that I've been thinking a lot about as somebody who has understood himself as having chronic pain, I I recognize all the time that uh, the manifestations of my pain, especially when they take um, affective or or sort of cognitive forms, they don't always get taken seriously by medicine. Hmm. So, well, okay, I I want to sort of ask two things. Like, firstly, do you mind um, telling me a bit more about your pain, but also Mm -hmm. specifically you said affective and cognitive. What do you mean by those two terms? Sure. So um, I have scoliosis-related disability. Um, So I have two curves in my spine that are roughly 30 to 40 degrees, uh, and it will actively worsen over the course of my life. Uh, And I will have episodes of sometimes intense pain, but my daily sort of experience of pain, if we were to even use um, a scale of one through 10, I mean, I'm always at like a two, three or a four, and that's just sort of baseline for me. Uh, but in terms of what I mean by cognitive and affective, I mean that sort of mentally and emotionally. Um, so my anxiety and depression uh, is related to this pain, especially as certain days become more difficult than others. Um, and for me, one of the primary forms that it appears cognitively um, is brain fog. I will have difficulty sort of piecing words together, sort of clarity of thinking. Um, Sometimes it feels 
as hard as it is to, des to describe a kind of gauzy layer over my head as I'm trying to think and articulate myself. Mm, yeah, so I mean, it sounds like by the sort of like vague definition that you gave at the start, chronic pain is not necessarily incurable pain, or maybe mm -hmm. cure is the wrong word, but like, it could come to an end eventually, it's not necessarily lifelong, but that there's yeah. something about um, the medical profession wanting to move in a very kind of like measurable way to getting rid of that pain. Absolutely. Or if not getting rid of it, being able to manage it medically. In my case, I was told I could either do surgery, which could eliminate the pain up to a certain percent, or receive um, injections, monthly injections, which would uh, eliminate my capacity to feel that pain. I want to be clear that there is nothing wrong about desiring a curative resolution for your pain, right? If somebody is in pain and it is affecting their day-to-day -day life, they have every right to want a, a better life for themselves in however way they define it. Mm. Yeah, I, this is sort of resonating with me in in, in unexpected ways because, like, um, so I have... Uh, well, I, I've had like neck and shoulder pain um, kind of as long as I can remember, but at least since I was a teenager and um, just in the last few years that has been diagnosed um, and I've been seeing a physiotherapist, but when I go and see the, the medical doctor, regardless of what's been going on with the physio, they're always like, you could also have steroid injections and right. that would like, you know, you would then not feel this pain anymore. Right. And I mean, the thing that I find most terrifying about that is that the tantalizing possibility of you not feeling pain anymore seems to be what medicine is offering. And I, I want to put some pressure on that. Those people for whom the, that possibility is foreclosed, have they failed in some capacity? Are they incurable? Are they the, are they the kind of medical failure that physicians would see as, well, they're not, you, we can't fix them and we can't medicalize them. So sorry, you're out of luck. So a lot of what you're saying is reminding me of this amazing essay that I read by the writer Hilary Mantel. Mm. Um, and she, I think in her 20s or maybe even when she was younger, um, just had this kind of inexplicable pain that turned out to be endometriosis, but was undiagnosed for, I think, at least a decade. Mm. Um, and she was going to see doctors and telling them again and again, like, I feel this. And eventually, because they couldn't explain it, they were like, they put her on, I think, antipsychotic drugs and institutionalized her. Um, all because she just kept saying, like, I feel this and I know it's real. So, yeah, I, uh, what was my question there? Well, I guess just like, is there something about a an individual's knowledge of their own pain that is getting erased when uh, the, you know, when doctors um, intervene and have their sense of like what needs to be done. Mm. So my instinct is to think about this historically um, and to think about the ways in which the rise of the training hospital, at least in, in Western context, right, involved. What's sorry, what's a training hospital? Sure. Um, so, in the 18th and 19th centuries, we had the rise of training hospitals in which um, 
younger physicians could apprentice with more experienced physicians. And a lot of that training depended on this notion that you needed to develop as a physician a kind of keener eye that could discern the body's real conditions from what a patient was telling you. So one of the ways in which uh, historians of medicine have talked about how this, uh, how patients kind of get dropped out of the conversation about their own health is that physicians see them as having the tendency to obscure what is really at stake, right? And then as a physician, you need to see through that or interpret or read through that body. And I, I hear that a lot in the story that you've suggested with, with Hilary Mantel. Mm. Well, I, I, my thinking's now kind of going, just wondering, I guess, like, if, if this is partly a development from the 18th and 19th centuries and the ways that like doctors began to be trained, are there ways of thinking about pain from before that time that actually we would do well to remember or kind of take seriously? So if we think before that, right, so earlier models of pain, they were, I think, unsurprisingly spiritual in nature, that pain was something you endured. Pain was something that was a kind of spiritual trial that you were tested in terms of your faith. I'm thinking about, uh, you know, the uh, sort of biblical uh, story of Job and the way that he overcomes his hardships and trials as a testament to his faith. I think that was very much the kind of model of pain that dominated. So that's interesting because spiritual has this kind of double meaning, right? Yeah. Like it can mean religious, but it can also mean like kind of psychological, mental, um, or like to do with the soul. Um, and and is one of the advantages of this older tradition that it could take seriously something like the, the the cognitive and the affective aspects of pain that you were evoking right at the start, like the mm-hmm. the um, yeah the kind of the emotional the the psychological. Those are things that that spiritual understanding of pain can encompass. Mm-hmm. I think that's absolutely true, right? One of the byproducts of this shift to pain as a localizable thing that you can then apply a form of medication to numb or not feel, right, suggests that these other aspects of pain are unimportant or simply reducible to that physical thing. So I'm thinking about how disability studies has moved to using the compound word body-mind as one word to resist the the distinction between body and mind. So I think these older models, in in fact, set up for us uh, a model of thinking about body minds before the rise of disability rights, which I think is really interesting to think about how these older models, which I think uh, scholars have been quick to dismiss because it feels antiquated or associated with the more hyper-religious aspects, that they don't take seriously the ways that it actually has value for our current moment. Mm. So for listeners that don't know, um, you, you write poetry, you've had poetry published. Mm. Um, and, and do you have a particular poem that you could kind of like read a bit to us um, or, you know, just, yeah, uh, something that illustrates what kind of thinking you've been doing about pain in that poetry? Sure. I think, uh, so my chapbook is behind me if I can get it. Uh, If I can read a small bit of one of the poems where I deal with this problem most directly. Mm. Um, It was a poem I wrote for my partner who um, has very little experience with chronic pain. So for him, I'm always, I always feel like I'm in a position of having to 
not so much explain, but share with him what that experience is like. Um, so this poem is called Pithy, uh, and it's a series of pithy statements that I have at one point said, and then beneath it is a pith, and I'm thinking about the core seed, is what I actually mean by it and stuff that I still haven't been able to say uh, because I feel like I'm afraid of burdening my partner in a certain way, right? So a few of the, a few of the pithy statements. I shrug off my messenger onto the floor and forget to kiss you when I walk through the door. Pith, the pain has its steel hoop around my lumbar. Two, I catch myself tottering, a deformation of my walk. Pith, a family resemblance, the curvature progresses faster than any other before me. I am not yet 30. Three, I take a tumble after I miss the curb. Pith, had you not caught me by the arm, I would have finally broken my first bone. So the poem is a series of these pithy statements. And I, I think something that I tried to do in this book and in, in so much of my work is inhabit and describe a set of experiences, body-minded experiences that I, I try to describe with as much fine detail as I can. Because I think as we've been talking about thus far, chronic pain is this kind of big word that actually encompasses so many minute and, and temporary experiences that don't get captured in the way we talk about it. But I think that's the work of poetry, fine detail and uh, inhabiting these really, really day-to-day -day and quotidian moments that escape our notice otherwise. Yeah. And I mean, one thing that I notice in that poem, maybe because of the conversation we've had and the things you've said, but like, it is very kind of like psychologically specific and emotionally specific, mm -hmm. right? Like, you know, the kind of thinking through of like, if you hadn't caught me, I would have broken a bone. Um, mm -hmm. You know, that kind of like fleeting moment of thinking, um, but also the sort of emotions of like what you say and what you withhold. And I guess I just feel like, well, where we began this conversation of the sort of the emotional and the psychological sides that the medical profession can fail to take seriously, it seems yes. to me like this poem is trying to do that. Absolutely. Or is it's doing that. Hopefully so, right? Um, I think the other thing that your your point was helping me think through is the way in which I feel like my work has been so invested in pushing back against dominant theories of pain that say that pain is unshareable, right? So I'm thinking of Elaine Scarry's The Body and Pain from 1985, which says, pain is that thing which destroys language. And for me, that is so absolutely not the case, right? That yes, my partner may not ever be able to feel my pain in exactly the ways that I do, but that does not preclude the ability of sharing that, right? This belief that pain is so uh, antithetical to the way we communicate as, as human beings, I just, it feels so off the mark for me um, and doesn't ever ask the opposite question, which is, have we just been really bad at listening to people in pain? Hmm. Yeah. Um, I, I have a question about kind mm -hmm. of, have has your partner read your poetry? Have other people in your life read your poetry? And if so, do you feel like it has 
allowed you to communicate something about your pain that they otherwise or they previously didn't understand, right? Not that that's the only value of poetry, but I'm just curious whether in your own life, um, mm. yeah, it has helped you communicate in a way that other methods haven't. That's the first time I've ever been asked that. And I think the answer is yes. I think about what my partner first said when he read my work, especially with the that poem, Pithy. He's like, I remember exactly when that particular event happened and I had no idea, mm. right? So he, he knew I was in pain. He could recognize what was happening in, in that I was having a thought process about that experience and its implications, but he didn't fathom the depth to which I was thinking about that event as it has having implications for our future or for the very real truth that I will, I will require forms of care that he may not be used to providing or giving. Um, and he said, he said to me something that I, I hold very deeply, which is, he's like, it's taught me how to care for you. And I think in some ways that's, that's what good poetry does, right? It teaches us how to care for each other, right? If not care for ourselves. Wow. I mean, yeah, that's, 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 uh, yeah, really moving. I feel like, um, yeah, you've made a very good case for why, um, at the very least, like we need poets as well as doctors. That's what I try to fool my students into believing at least. <laughs> um, I'm convinced. Travis Chi Wing Lao, thank you very much. It was a pleasure, thank you. That's it for this episode. For links to books mentioned in our discussion, plus further reading, visit our website, howtoreadpodcast.com. You can also listen to two bonus clips, one in which Travis discusses how chronic pain can shape a person's sense of self and life story and another in which he argues that it can be damaging to strive for quote-unquote healthiness. To hear about our latest episodes and news, follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, at HowToReadNow. This episode was produced by me, Milan Talunen. And by me, Olivia Branscombe. With editorial assistance from me, Eleanor Roth-Hessen. And from me, Abby Rooney. Our theme music is by Poddington Bear. Special thanks to Columbia University for its support, and thank you for listening.